This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, doggy. Hi. This is Lolita. She's very friendly. Of course, it's Lolita. <laughs> <laughs> She's very selfless. She's practically the only new face, and I haven't been here for a year or two, and uh, that's pretty fabulous. I moved into. San Francisco's Zen Center some decades ago. There were many reasons for that move. One of them was I was looking for family. And I thought that showing up and going to the hall when the bell rang and doing my best meant I would live there forever and be a part of family. It didn't go that way. But I have learned, I found family there. So you all are a part of it. Alas, I bring sad news. (laughs) Every last one of us is going to die. What are we going to do about that? I have been working as a hospice chaplain for nine years now. It's really amazing how time passes, isn't it? I'm getting older, you are too. Although none of you look older. (laughs) Nor do I. A surprising thing, maybe it's not so surprising, a truth that I have learned in meeting with hundreds, thousands of people who are dying and their family members who hear they're dying is no one's ready. Everyone's surprised. I have a I have a family I had a long meeting with this week. He's 92. He's a good Catholic. He says I'm ready to go. He's been chronically ill. Actually, actually he did he had that life where he had a long good life and his health held and then suddenly he was sick and he had a rapid decline. As I have as I've analyzed ways of living and dying, I think that's a really good one. So he's okay. But he's 92 and now he's bedridden and he's saying, I'm ready to meet the Lord. And his grown children, if he's 92, what are they, 50? More? They're saying, can't we do something? They're saying, this is, this is tragic. They're saying there might be a miracle. So my idea, my bright idea for those of us in this room is we can do better than that. Because we're Zen students. Because we are given an opportunity while we're living to get a little more used to the idea. The first Jusso ceremony <clears throat> I ever went to, <clears throat> you probably all know, but what it means is 
some, some person is set up as what's called the head student for what's called a practice period. And at the end of that, they go through a ceremony where they sit up and everybody asks them questions. So the first time I ever went to one of those, it was at City Center. And I think I had just started practicing at City Center. And it might have been the first sashin I sat there. So I'd been sitting for a week down in that dark, dank basement. <laughs> and um, I probably was feeling, I, I absolutely was feeling pretty serious. And then I heard there was this ceremony coming up and you're going to have a chance to ask. And in those days, I thought the shoe so knew everything. You're going to have a chance to ask this guy any question that's on your heart. So I, intense, intense newcomer, when it was my turn, I asked about death. What is death? And the Shuso couldn't answer that question. But after, in the hall, Lou Hartman stopped me, and Lou Hartman said, of all the people in that room, you're the one who needs more Zazen. <laughs> and I think that was the start of my wonderful relationship with Lou Hartman. Since Lou died, I've been surprised at how frequently I remember and quote Lou. What Lou meant was, as people who meditate, we have, and, and this is specifically why Lou said that, we have a chance to watch the outbreath. we have a chance to experience, not read about, not hear about, not think about death, we have a chance to intimately experience, right? Zen is experience. Death on every outbreath. Where does it go? Where did it come from? What is it to be human? The great question of Zen. What is this? There's, a, there's something that we talk about in hospice that's called a good death. And, and citizens mean a peaceful, <laughs> no crying out, no distress. And if there appears to be distress, give her more drugs. Because we want mom to be calm when she dies. That's what is generally called a good death. I think as Zen students, we can examine that. What were, in my, in my sitting group, we, we always are reading a book together, and we're currently reading Joko Beck, and she is so good. I really recommend taking a look at Joko Beck. And the talk we just read was a talk about awareness. What is awareness? When I am meditating, and I am thinking, and I'm watching the thoughts. What is it? What's watching? 
I asked a teacher that once a long time ago, and his answer was Buddha. Could be. Buddha. So we have a chance to develop that awareness, that watching. And I'm going to say a good death is an aware death. My teacher, Steve Stuckey, was the kind of guy who, when he went to the dentist for a filling, he refused Novocaine. He said, well, the pain isn't going to last long, and, and if I had that numb jaw, it would last for a really long time. So that was Steve. And when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, throughout the three months that he survived that diagnosis, he consistently tried to refuse painkillers. It's always a choice. It's always a choice between being aware and being pain-free. And that is not just physical, right? That's us. Life is hard, and paying attention and seeing how hard it is, is painful. For me as a priest, that's the vow I made. I promise to pay attention. I promise to try to learn something. So I think we can redefine, not redefine, that's a little arrogant, but we can take a deeper look at that phrase, a good death. How wonderful, how wonderful to know what's happening. A lot of what I do as a chaplain is try to help people understand what's happening. Again, someone someone will be 92 years old and dying, and the family say, don't tell her. (laughs) Don't tell her she's dying. And I kind of think with the changes that happen when death comes, it must feel pretty confusing. And so, unless I'm told not to, I try to explain to them what's going on. So I try to help people who've been allowed to choose comfort over awareness. Because that's America. Choose comfort over awareness. I try to help them know death is coming, your life is growing short. Here's what's happening in your body. And you ask questions. Are you afraid? Is there anything left you need to deal with? And I'll say to the family members who are watching someone who's been what we call actively dying for days, say she's working hard. Sometimes I'll say it's like she has a thousand tiny fish hooks in her and she's releasing them one by one. Don't try to make her eat something. Don't ask her what year it is. (laughs) So, So what do we want? Those of us who've chosen Zen, I probably came to meditation looking for comfort. I did, well, I came looking for something called peace, right? And a lot of people do that. Ooh, I want peace of mind, I'm gonna go meditate. Yeah, as soon as I started meditating, I had to go back into therapy. I did not find (laughs) peace of mind. I found all the shit I'd been avoiding. It had been sitting there waiting for me. Long time ago, I heard Robert Aitken 
give a talk. Robert Aitken was one of the original American Zen teachers, great, great teacher. He found Zen in an internment camp during World War II, found his Zen teacher there. And his wife Anne was dying, and he said that Anne was going into her death with an air of curiosity. So I tell some of my patients about that. Instead of, instead of letting your mind run on fear and regrets, how about curiosity? You're going into a really interesting phase. How about that for us? It's 2019. Donald Trump is the president and the country is in trouble and the climate's collapsing and what are we going to do? How about curiosity? How about awareness, paying attention? It takes a lot of courage. It takes as much courage as any of us have on any given day. And if we bring as much as we can, that has to be enough. When David Chadwick asked Suzuki Roshi to sum up Zen, the story I often tell, I love it so much. They've all been at Tassajara, and Chadwick raises his hand during Q&A, and he says, oh, Master, you are such a great teacher, and I'm sorry, I'm such a poor student. And I just, what, what have you been saying? You know, I often will think of, of Jesus' disciples. Jesus comes to them and says, well, gotta go now. And the disciples say, wait, wait. What, what, what have you been saying to us? And the Buddha too. The Buddha says, okay, I gave you a hint and you didn't pick it up, so I'm gonna die now. What, what? So Suzuki Roshi's not dying, but you practice at Tassajara, you're dying all the time. And Chadwick raises his hand and he asks Suzuki Roshi, can you, what is it? What have you been trying to teach us? Could you sum up Zen? <laughs> And everybody laughed except Suzuki Roshi. And Suzuki Roshi thought, and he said, his answer was, everything changes. It's another thing, anyone who's been studying Zen for longer than, I don't know how long, any serious Zen student knows this is very basic. We can, we can sit around a, a, a table with a cup of tea in our hands and, and someone can say everything changes and then we all laugh. Can we find the courage to experience that? I, more and more, I, I think that's the invitation that is, that is offered in this practice not to read it, not to think it, not to talk about it, to experience it. About a month after Steve was diagnosed, I went on Sashin. I was supposed to be the Tenzo, but that was not going to happen. So I went on Sashin. I, I do Sashin once a year with Everyday Zen, great group. 
and I sat down for the first period, there were about 50 of us, and I had a vision, and perhaps what I call a vision is what I mean when I say directly experience it. And my vision was that everyone in that room already carried their death. As Steve had been the youngest, strongest, most reliable, and all that time this cancer had been growing in it. So it's growing in me, it's growing in you, it's even growing in Lolita. And we don't know it, and we should know it. Some of us will have the misfortune to be hit by a truck or something. But for those of us who are going to have a natural death, it's already here. So I'm going to say that moment was one of my direct experiences of the reality of the finite nature of life. And oh, I wonder what it is. For financial reasons alone, how long am I going to live? I go to my Kaiser doctor. She says, oh, you're good for 20 more years. I say, doc, I don't know how I'm going to afford it. I meet people <clears throat> who are living the life none of us would want. I, I, I meet people with, about half of my patients have dementia. And that can go on for a really long time, and it doesn't look too good to me. So here's this lady, and she's bedridden, and she's crying out in distress, and she's in a care facility, and her daughter is standing over her. And her daughter says she never would have wanted to end up like this. And for once I don't say it, but I certainly think no one would want to end up like this. But you know, her daughter keeps doing everything she can to extend her life. Because we think just staying alive, we think having the lungs and brain working is the whole story. Sometimes I think the people who I meet, I think, <laughs> I think life is quite a habit. And I'll tell you, I love watching habit. But it has to be. If I have an old lady who has no visitors and has been bedridden in a uh, facility for five years, and when the aide comes around with the pureed food and she eats it eagerly, she wants that nutrition. She wants to stay alive. I think I'm looking at habit. And I understand that our biological imperative is to stay alive. Stay alive and multiply. Because <laughs> we need more people on this planet. Some people stay alive for an event a marriage, their own birthday, Christmas. There's a lot of death around Christmas. So there, there's an indication that there is something in us that chooses to live or die, which is really interesting, isn't it?
what I think is available to us as Zen students, as meditators, as family members, what I think is available to us is the opportunity to learn to love life. Because what's offered in Zen is loving life just as it is. Finally, no longer saying, well, when that happens, then I'll be happy. And that is so elusive. And even when it does happen, it's going to change. I've been bouncing back and forth between anxiety and depression all my life, and I've had some deep depressions. And there was a time when I was, when Steve, when Steve and I were both young and we were practicing together, there was a time when I felt that that, that what he showed me about life would mean I could see the beauty around me. And when I did, when I'd be walking down the street and I'd stop and look at a flower or maybe a face and see the beauty in it just as it was, I would think, oh, this practice is, this is great. This practice is really working. It was like a crack in the, the ice covering of depression that I came into life with. And I don't think that anymore. I, when, those, when I see a flower and see how beautiful it is, I'm glad. But I think it's, there's actually an opportunity for it to be bigger than that. One time, um, <laughs> I guess I sat Sashin with Mel, and Mel said, no, it was a regular talk. Mel Weitzman, the abbot of Berkeley Zen Center, 18 bows to Mel, who just turned 90. Mel said, you know the way on day four of Sashin, the world is all kind of shimmery and glittery? And then Mel said, it's always that way. So can we see that? I think we can. I think, I think we have that capability, that the Buddha nature in each of us waking up makes that possible. And the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually have to be fabulous. It isn't going to be fabulous all the time. Can we love it and see its beauty just as it is? Even when we too have just heard that death is coming to us. So there's the person who's dying, there's the way they receive the news, there's the way they actually die. Sometimes someone will just be doing so wonderfully and I'll tell them this is, this is the last great teaching you're giving to your children. And I believe that's true, that death can be like this. And I, this is one of the great uh, uh, byproducts of hospice, that death has been brought back out of hospitals, and so people can see what it's like. And the next generation doesn't have to be as afraid as this generation has been. So there's the person who's dying, whether they're 
screaming or smiling. I hear that the night he died, the hospice nurse came to see Steve. <laughs> Pancreatic cancer is really painful. And Steve, you know, he got real thin and all that stuff. And the hospice nurse comes in and he's dying. And the hospice nurse walks in the room and Steve, he's like, Hi, my name's Steve. <laughs> he still had that Steveness. So the way I talk about him brings up the other side to this question. And this is the question of what is death? Is Steve dead? I talk about him all the time. I talk to him. He hasn't talked back recently, but he kind of doesn't have to. I, I'm one of the few who had the good fortune <clears throat> to practice closely with him for 20 years. I, I pretty well internalized his teachings, I think. And I keep talking to him. Even saying, I wish you hadn't died, I could really use you right now. He's big enough for that news. So is he dead? When the lungs and brain stop working, we call that death. I don't remember which funeral it was that it was at Green Gulch and Grace Shearson goes up to the coffin and gives it a big whack and screams, alive or dead? And that's a really good question, actually, <laughs> right? Yeah, it had to be Grace, whack. Everybody's like, oh man, that was loud. <laughs> but alive or dead? Because a lot of what I'm talking about is Let's start living while we can. Let's not be dead. It's not just go to work, come home, watch television, go to bed and get up and do it again and keep ourselves protected, right? Self-protection is death. So be alive while we can and keep those who've already gone, whose hearts and lungs have stopped, keep them alive. I was waiting in the living room. All those people, John King. Is John King dead? So let's say that's another part of being alive while we're alive. To be remembered, to create a legacy. I don't have children and one big hospice trick is you talk to them about their children, and then you say, that's your legacy. You know, it's not a very religious part of the country, so the care I offer is spiritual, not religious. And the care I offer is comfort. So they say, I have five kids and 18 grandkids, and I say, that's your legacy. Your DNA is in the stream. It's true. There will be someone who has eyes shaped like theirs and old legs. I'm so much like my father and I wasn't raised by my father and it's really interesting. My, the, the way I move, the way my body's formed. DNA, heredity, very interesting. But we're Zen students and we can do better. Everyone in this room, 20, 30, 40 years from now, if the 
if humankind has survived. Someone who knew you could be sitting up at the front of the room and talking about you and your practice. That's available to all of us. That's our legacy. I hope it's enough. I believe it's enough. It's enough for Shakyamuni Buddha. (laughs) So every once in a while, in my work, I'll say to someone who's dying, you know, you know there's no such thing as death. And that's, uh, that's what I've said to you this morning. There's physical death, but how interesting is that? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. That can be quite compelling. But there's more going on than that. Joko Beck, really cool quote. Joko Beck said, the key, the key is not to learn to die bravely, but to learn not to need to die bravely. That's good, huh? The key is not to learn to die bravely, but to learn not to need to die bravely. One of the great advantages of doing the work I do for a person like me is is I've had thousands, hundreds, thousands of chances to look into lives, to take a shot at the question of what is this all about? Life is so hard, what is it all about? I deeply believe that what each of us needs is to be seen. And it doesn't happen very much. Sorry, but if everyone's looking at their iPhone, no one is seeing anyone. We need to be seen. We don't need to create connection. Connection is there. We need, as Zen students, and particularly as a priest, my job is to manifest the connection that's already there. And I can do that for people who are dying. And we can all do it in every moment. For one thing, put the freaking phone down. One of my spiritual practices is to not check my email when I'm standing online in a store. Pretty advanced. Make connection while we can. Make connection while we can. Because we really need each other. And all this being smart and being rich and being defended isn't working. That is what's on my mind. It's very nice to be at Hartford Street. and We have time and we can do some Q&A here if you like. Since I, the, we die, maybe that's the meaning of the life. Do you agree with that? No, I'm just saying it's not about agreeing. 
So when Toni Morrison died... I guess she said that how many years ago, right? <laughs> and everybody's, oh no! Oh, that's terrible! I say, man, she was 88. She was as woke as it gets. She did as much as could be done. I don't actually think that's terrible. Then, yeah, she said that, and the next sentence in that was, ah. but we do language. That may be, then I forgot that word. Language? And I thought about that in the line of a practice, you know, we go mind, body, and speech, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The speech is big part of the practice. So, yeah, I appreciated that. The two sentences kind of summed up different perspective, but still on spot on or something. Yeah, thank you, Toni Morrison. Giant. Giant. <laughs> Anybody, anything? Hey, Stephen, how are you doing? Thank you. Um, I was just reading something by Stephen Batchelder, and he talked about, because I share with you that idea that as a priest, it's about helping people to feel seen, to feel encountered. Um, but he said he was like using the translation of Kuan Yin as hearing voice, hearing the voice. And he said that he thinks that there's so much chatter going on, that really um, one of the opportunities is it's beyond being seen, it's to be genuinely heard from a place of truth and authenticity, that, that, that it's, um, you know, it's, it's like the this, this step beyond just encountering or just engaging. Um, and I was wondering if, if you think he's playing with words and those are the same, those two things are the same. Well, we're all playing with words, but they, as Toni Morrison said, it's what we've got. I I'd like to I'd like to what is a word for being seen and heard because it, of course it's both of course it's everything yeah. The first trick isn't it to hear ourselves back to Zazen I did nothing but sit and think about myself and tell myself my pitiful story for years. <laughs> Till I just wore the damn thing out. Yeah. And that's something a good counselor will do. Listen until the patient wears the story out. But we have this tool that's always available and free, kind of free cost of your life. So being seen, being acknowledged, that's a good word for all of it. And, um, and understanding, understanding what it is that wants and needs to be seen. And it's not that. Remember I sold real estate in San Francisco for 16 years, so I had a pretty good facade going. And I really wanted that to be seen and respected. It's not that. 
<laughs> it's not that. Wim Wenders famously said a couple of years ago, photography is dead. And you used to do a lot of photography. Yeah. And you do a lot of death. Is photography dead? <laughs> I took both of the pictures of John King that are upstairs. Photography is not dead. Okay. Photography, you know, I love to travel and I go to museums and sometimes I'll see some old photograph. It happened once. There's one in the Metropolitan Museum. It's early 19th century, and it's some guy in a top hat with whiskers and a cigar, and he's standing next to a chain, and each link is almost as big as he is. And it's just that moment, and the way that photography stops time. Photography as we knew it is dead, and a good thing too, because black and white photography in a dark room with those chemicals is one of the things that's contributed to the difficulties that in the planet. But I've already, let's see, I think I've clicked my iPhone three or four times since I came in the door. So is photography dead? <laughs> Thanks for the question. Thanks for bringing up Vim Vendors. Once I opened a restaurant for Francis Coppola that had been a Zim's and then it was a Jim's and Vim Vendors was the artist in residence so the restaurant was called Vim's. Yeah, and he used to come in. <laughs> we could all just, the next time I'm asked to give a Dharma talk, we'll just look at um, The Angels in Berlin. Oh, oh, yeah. Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire. We'll just look at Wings of Desire. Everything I've been talking about is Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire. And as Zen students, we can use that desire to our benefit. We can use it to our benefit. It doesn't have to control and ruin our lives. Anybody else? Anything else? Nothing, Cheryl? Oh, lots of things, but it will take us forever. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Fortunately, we have forever. Yes.